Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. When you get to a point where you are the closest thing to just your natural self, I'm not going to try and sound like Mike Greenberg. I'm not going to try and sound like Jim Rohn. I'm not going to try and sound like Colin Cowherd. I'm not going to try and sound like Tony Kornheiser. I'm just going to sound like me. When you get to that, that's when you're getting somewhere. And that really can only come with the 10,000 hours. Welcome to 94 and More, a podcast presented by Bristol Studio. I'm your host, Jake Fenster, and I'm joined by my co-host, Vic Law. How you doing? And today, our guest is Mike Greenberg. Thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And, and after all the years that I have spent watching Vic play basketball and all of the memories and thrills and fun he provided for my family and me as, uh, as an alum and as a fan, it is the least I can do. Vic, I don't know if you know this now, but not only did I go to Northwestern and my wife went to Northwestern, but my daughter is a sophomore and my son just got accepted. So we are oh, uh, nice. we wow. are as purple a family as you will ever come across. Go cats. <laughs> well, the end never comes <laughs> off, as we all know. That's exactly right. And so it is a pleasure to see you guys, and thank you for having me. Of course. What have uh, these last few months been like for you? I, I'm sure there's a lot going on, and, and being over at ESPN and having your show, uh, what's it been like navigating that with the pandemic? Well, I mean, it, it's been unlike anything, I suppose. I, I My regular daily routine has probably been disrupted less than almost anyone you know, because at no point did I stop going into a studio. Um, I, really? We moved. Yes, we moved. Um, so my, my show, Get Up, is shot in New York City. They moved us out of that studio when the pandemic first, when New York really first shut down. But I kept doing it live from Bristol. So I'm the only person in my studio. So. The, I mean, it's an enormously different show. I used to have anywhere from four to six people in there with me every day. I'm now the only one and everyone else is on a Zoom like this. It isn't actually Zoom, but some facsimile thereof. Mm-hmm. But I've still gotten up and gotten dressed and gone to a place and gone to work every single day. Um, so in, in that regard, it hasn't my life hasn't been impacted in the way almost everyone else's has. But certainly from from the standpoint of covering sports, it has been. Um, enormously in, impacted. We, we went through a period there where there were no sports, and that was yeah. obviously something of a unique challenge to do a daily sports show with no sports. And then having covered the process of it all coming back and watching the way they've maneuvered through it and starting with, you know, baseball came back and golf came back and MLS and the National Women's Soccer League came back and people were doing their things in a bubble. The NBA came back and, and, and finished their season in a bubble, which was astonishing. The National Football League to get through their season, college football to get through their season. Now you have, you know, all the everything going forward. We're working our way towards March Madness and everything else. Um, you know, covering the um, the extraordinary efforts and sacrifice that are being made yeah. by so many people and families to put sports on during these incredibly challenging times has been remarkable, and it certainly has changed. I think the way people view a lot of this stuff for sure. Well, I agree, you know, um, and going along with, you know, the sacrifice, I, I would say that you are yourself are still sacrificing quite a lot, still going into the office. My question for you would be, is it still just as smooth or is it much harder still having that chemistry and that connection with your co-hosts via Zoom? Like what, how does, how does your show change and how is it different for you now that you guys are on, you know, some kind of channel via Zoom? And you're not next to each other. Yes, it certainly changes. And it certainly is a different kind of challenge. You know, mm-hmm. um, when we were about a month or six weeks into this, I told the staff, we need to start a file called, why weren't we doing this anyway? So what we have found <laughs> are some efficiencies that we didn't have, or I, I should say we found ways to be efficient in ways that we hadn't been. So there have been a few things that we are probably doing better than we ever have before. That said, obviously, as is the case in any form of human interaction, when you cannot read body language, when you cannot give nonverbal cues, when you can't do all of the things that you can't do when people are not in the same room, it is going to have an impact on what you do. So we've had to be very disciplined. We've had to be like you guys just had it. 
right? You're doing a show yeah. and you tell you right. who's going to go next. Like yeah. that is just going to happen. And if there's one good thing about it, it's that I think audiences have become very accustomed to that. Like mm-hmm. if you watch news, we all watched obviously a lot of news in 2020 based upon all of yeah. the things that were happening in the world between the pandemic and all of the, the, the unrest and then the election. Um, you, we got very accustomed, I think, to people talking over each other. No, you go. I, I think that's something that as a broadcaster for yeah. 30 years used to make me crazy. If that ever happened on my show once, I was furious. And now I think it's we all just accept that this is an unavoidable part of the uh, of the process. And and it bothers me a lot less and it should bother you a lot less, too. So um, that's a long answer to a, a, a direct question. It has changed everything, Vic, and it has made everything more difficult. But it doesn't mean you can't still do a great show. It just means you have to be really, really disciplined about certain pieces of it. That's a great point, because when we first started doing this, we were trying out different platforms and we were first doing it just through audio. So Vic and I couldn't we couldn't see each other. So we didn't know when someone was going to ask a question and we'd like text each other on the side and we kept interrupting (laughs) each other. So this is this is the new way for us. And I think, like you said, it's I've watched, you know, get up and I've seen that happen. I've watched first take and I've seen it happen and you become kind of more it becomes more normalized and you're not so worried about the mistakes. You realize everybody is just trying to figure it out. Um, and and just kind of navigate this as best as they can. And that's just- And it's not just sports shows, you know? Like, I mean, if you watch, I watched, I probably watched more CNN last year than I have at any time in my life. And it happens there. They talk over each other. Signal goes down. This guy's on FaceTime. Well, we lost him, Wolf. Okay, well, just keep going. (laughs) Like that, you know, like that's just life in this this, and and it's, it's just not the end of the world. I think that's so interesting because like you said, you know, you used to get so caught up on that. I feel like with sports broadcasting, you, any, any being on TV, live TV, you're expected to be perfect. You're expected to not mess up and not have those mistakes. So like you said, does that feel a little bit more liberating now that you can kind of make those mistakes and and just kind of work through it and find ways to work around it? Or are you still caught up in that old format of no mistakes Here's here's the analogy yeah. that I would make. I'm going to make a terrible basketball analogy, which is to say <laughs> that right, there comes it. a point. There comes a point that you're like an established star player, and like if you turn the ball over, the coach isn't going to take you out of the game. But that doesn't mean it's okay to turn the ball over. It just means they're not going to take you out of the game. So yeah. that's the analogy I would make. It's obviously not a perfect one, but. Yes, it's okay if two people talk over each other. It's not the end of the world. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing everything you can to avoid it. You do everything you can to avoid it. And then you just accept every now and again that it happens. But you wouldn't accept it if it was that it happened because you didn't do it right. Like if if it was an an undisciplined moment, like like we all know now. And on my show, it used to be a free for all. And get up. If you have an idea, just talk because I can see you. You can see me and it'll be fine. But right now, if you start talking over me, especially in the format that I'm working in now, there's a delay. I think most right. people listening to this conversation are probably aware that if someone is on a satellite, which for the most part, that's what you're seeing on television interviews, there's usually a little bit of a delay. So the worst is when I'm talking and you're talking, but I don't know that you're talking until about a second and a half after you start. Now we're both done for. So yeah. um, that's when the coach should take you out of the game, no matter how <laughs> yeah. good a player you are. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a good thing to keep in mind. I think, like you said, it's you're not you're not accepting and, and making these mistakes and not caring about it. You're actively trying to do the best that you can, perform the best that you can, and and just understanding that there are some things that are out of our control in this situation, and you kind of just have to adapt uh, and adjust on the fly. So that's a really important point. Um, but I wanted to ask: is is this the dream for you? When you were a kid, was this what you wanted to do? Is this where you could have said, if I had a wish? I want to be a sports uh, broadcaster and host a show on TV. Is that, is that what you wanted or did you have some other dream for yourself? I I'm a lot older than you guys are. So I'm assuming this is a name that, you know, I wanted to be Walt Frazier. I wanted to be the starting point guard for the New York Knicks. I slept in New York Knicks, number 10 footy pajamas. Um, I had posters of Walt Frazier all over my room because not only was he the, uh, an unbelievable player, 
but he was also he was so cool he had so much style he was he was way ahead of his time in that regard at at a a, a time when nba players were wearing bell bottoms and and could not have possibly cared less about how they presented themselves for the most part um he was way ahead of his time in terms of fashion and sort of becoming a part of the culture in the way that we now take for granted that athletes are, but that was not the way the world was in the seventies when I was growing up. So that was what I really wanted. I wanted to be a player and I've a basketball player first and foremost. And I figured out pretty quickly that probably wasn't going to happen. So then I decided um, I need to find some way to be around sports. And in all honesty, if I were to, and look, obviously I have no complaints. I have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful career. I couldn't be more grateful for it. But if I had it all to do over again, had I known that the world was going to change in such a way that people like me could become like general managers and stuff like that, like Daryl Morey is another Northwestern guy, like you may know him. He's younger than me. He wasn't a basketball player. He was just a guy who loves basketball and understands like analytics and statistics and numbers and all that kind of stuff. And this is very common in baseball with yeah. guys like Brian Cashman and Theo Epstein and all that kind of, that didn't exist when I was growing up. It would never have occurred to me that that was an option. Had I known that, I think I would have liked to try that. And I'll tell you why, because I'll take, I'll take Northwestern basketball as an example. The weekend that I spent in Salt Lake city in the spring of, or in March of 2017, with my wife and my two kids and when, when Vic and, and you guys went to the dance, that's one of the best experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Um, and I've had a lot of great experiences as a sports fan, but you're only so much a part of it if you're not really a part of it. And mm-hmm. like to have just once in my life, having been around sports now all of my adult life, I'm 53 years old, I've been working in this business one way or another for 32 years. Um, just once to have actually been the one who won or even the one who lost, you know, the, the, to use an, an, a, a, the, to quote the Teddy Roosevelt, like to actually be the man in the arena, um, you know, to be the one in there uh, covered in blood and sweat and mud. Uh, th- that's, that's never going to be me. And I would have loved that. And I just didn't know that it was ever an option. So th- this was a, about as close to a dream career as I could have ever imagined. And again, I'm in no way complaining. Yeah. But if I had known that being like the general manager of a basketball team or a baseball team or a football team, if I had known that was an option, I think I would have liked to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're not all as lucky as Vic to have actually been the man in the arena. Um, But I definitely want to follow up on that. How did you get that first job in sports? So how did you start working towards getting closer uh, to the game, right? The game that you loved. And most people have this dream. They have this idea. What did you do? What was the first thing you did that actually kind of started putting you on that path? Well, when I graduated from Northwestern, I went to Medill. And by the way, this week was the 100th anniversary of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, the best school of journalism in the world. Um, So happy, you know, happy 100 Medill, keeping it 100, uh, (laughs) the Medill School of Journalism. Boy, how ridiculous did that sound? How could anything sound sounded pretty good. ridiculous? I thought it sounded pretty good. It sounded pretty good. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed <laughs> for me. But anyway, I tried to put that in, an, in that, that the little 100 emoji in a tweet to celebrate Medill, <laughs> and I couldn't find it. That's how oh, frequently. Uh, it's not one of my, you know, your frequently used emojis yeah, show yeah. up in the front. I've got like the little, you know, I've got the laughing face. I've got a few of them. Anyway, I digress. Um, When I graduated from college, I got a job at a radio station in Chicago called WMAQ Radio. It doesn't exist anymore. It was an all sports radio station, excuse me, an all news radio station because there was no all sports radio station yet. And uh, I was a production assistant and I, I worked, when I started, I started out working one day a week. And I just kept begging for more work and begging for more work. And the rest of the week, I worked as a maitre d' in a restaurant on LaSalle Street in Chicago. And I just kept asking for more opportunities. And eventually, I started getting some more opportunities. And whenever I was in the station, I would go over to the sports department whenever I had a free minute. And whoever was doing the sports, I would ask them questions. I would ask if there was anything I could do and all that kind of thing. And then eventually, they started letting me do little things, um, which I did unpaid. I just said, look, if there's anything I can do when I'm not on my shift or whatever it is, 
um, I will do it. And, and, and all that one thing led to another. And when they started the first all sports radio station in Chicago, the score in January of 1992, um, the guy who started it had been at my previous station and he knew that I was a young guy who would work hard. So he hired me to come in as a behind the scenes guy. I was a producer. So I started there. And after my shift, I would produce the afternoon show. Some of your older listeners in Chicago will remember this show. It was called the heavy fuel crew. It was hosted by Dan McNeil and Terry Boris. I was the producer. And then after the show was over, I would go unpaid. I would go over to the Chicago stadium and I would cover whoever was home that night. I would I would cover the Bulls game or the Blackhawks game. And I would just come in and, and leave sound bites and stuff like that for the morning. And one thing led to another and they decided I was doing a good job. And I just talked about this on the radio the other day. Um, in one sentence, the program director changed my life. That same guy who brought me over from WMAQ said, Mike, you're doing a good job. We're going to send you on the road with the Bulls. And in May of 1992, I went to Cleveland to cover the Eastern Conference Finals. And my life has literally never been the same. And wow. I started covering that team as a beat. And I covered them every single day. And I parlayed that into a TV job. And the next thing you knew, I was at ESPN. So when people say Michael Jordan created a lot of people's careers, um, there are a lot of them you don't know about. And I'm one of them. And, and I've told him that a million times. Um, mm. There's no way in the world I, I, am, I would be a lawyer today I had it in my head a certain amount of time that I was going to give to this and then I was going to give up on it and I would go to law school. My dad was a lawyer and everyone always assumed I'd be a lawyer and I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to cover sports. Um, and if they, if it hadn't been for Michael Jordan, I would be a lawyer today. So um, wow. he made a lot of people's careers and I happen to be one of them. Well, Greeny, we're going to get back to that because I'm yeah. very happy that finally we have somebody on the show who's a, who's a knowledgeable <laughs> basketball person. But um, going, back before, <laughs> going back before that, can you uh, talk about what made you even choose Northwestern to start with? You know, coming from the East Coast, what brought you to Chicago? Yeah, it was the journalism school. Um, I wanted to go to journalism school. I, I, by that time, I was just telling you, I started out wanting to be an athlete. By that time, I had absolutely figured out that I wanted to cover sports um, and I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be, um, you know, a broadcaster. Right. And uh, the Medill School of Journalism was then as it is now, the number one school of its kind in the country. I applied. And from the moment I got in, there was never any question I was going to go there. So what are, uh, tell us about your experience at Northwestern. Obviously, playing basketball at Northwestern and being a sports fan, um, for so many years for the purple, we both know that it's not the uh, Alabama or the Duke, but it definitely is garnering a lot of popularity and a lot of traction over the recent years. Can you give us some uh, insight into what your experience in Northwestern was like as a sports yeah. fan, as a student? Well, well, well beyond the sports stuff. I, the, the sports piece of it is um, I have great memories of going. I went to practically every basketball game um, as a student, four years. We weren't good. Uh, I mean, we never made the tournament, obviously. We never even made the NIT during my years there. <clears throat> a little bit later, we had some better teams. But we had good mm -hmm. players um, over the course of time that I rooted for like crazy, the best of whom was Sean Morris, um, who, Vic, I'm sure you know, because um, yeah. he, he stayed around the university forever. Mm -hmm. He was a terrific player, big power forward, fought like hell, just got beat up inside all the time and always played so hard. And we would always – we played everybody tough at home. We would play in the Big Ten in those days. So I was there from 1985 to 1989. Bob Knight was the coach at Indiana. Judd Heathcote was the coach at Michigan State. This was right after Magic Johnson. Um, right. We had, I mean, Clem Haskins was at Minnesota. Um, what's his name? The guy who went to Maryland. Gary Williams was at Ohio State. Uh, the most profane person you've ever heard in your entire life. Gene Cady was at <laughs> We would sit directly behind the visitor's bench. That's where the student section was. We would sit directly behind there. And I mean, I, the things I yelled at all of these coaches, over the <laughs> uh, Gene, Katie, Lou Henson, Bob Knight, um, yeah. all of them. And we would play everybody tough at home and almost never won. But my favorite memory was in January of 88 on big Monday, we played Indiana. Indiana was the defending national champion. They had beaten. That was the Keith smart team had won the title in 87. Yeah. They come to Evanston in 88, January of 88, on Big Monday on ESPN, and we beat them. And I we I was unquestionably one of the first five people to rush the court. My roommate, Craig Isaac, still has Dick Vitale's game notes 
while Dickie V was interviewing wow. Bill, who was the coach, he ran over and grabbed Dickie V's notes, which we still have. <laughs> and, and that was one of my favorite memories ever. Candidly, Vic, until your team, that was my favorite memory of Northwestern basketball was beating Indiana that night on Big Monday. It was such a great game. And then as, as, as far as other memories at Northwestern, I mean, it was it's just the best place. It's a million times better now yeah. than it was when I was there. I always say I went to a lovely little school by a lake. Um, now world-class university with world-class right. facility. I mean, the growth in the university is, is, is unimaginable and unmeasurable and incalculable. Um, but I loved it there. And, um, it brought me to Chicago, which is where I met and married my wife. So, I mean, absolutely everything in my, I, pretty much everything I have in my life, I owe to Northwestern. I want to stay kind of in that realm. It's a little different, but you're talking about these Northwestern, uh, moments that you remember, and you kind of alluded to Vic's team that made it to the tournament. What was that like for you uh, being a fan of Northwestern and also working in the sports world and seeing that happen for the first time, finally? Listen, I never at any point have pretended to be anything but what I am, which is a fan. So at no point was I trying to pretend I was impartial when it came to our team. Uh, Vic will tell you I openly rooted. There was no discussion about it. But Mike and Mike, the day after the game, the pass from Nate to, to pardon um, Nate Tapborn to Derek pardon that won that game against Michigan. Um, we led Mike and Mike with that. I talked about it nonstop. We put Chris Collins on. It was, I, I, we, my whole family went to Salt Lake city. Um, I always joke. I don't know how ESPN stayed on the air that weekend. Cause we were all there. I was there. Michael Wilbon was there. Jay Adonde was there. Rachel Nichols was there. Um, uh, Kevin Blackstone was there. I mean, I have no idea how ESPN did any broadcasting that weekend because the entire network was there. Um, my favorite memory about that day that we always joke about, my family still jokes about, is we, it, it's ironic because for Northwestern sports where we so frequently don't have the same level of home field or home court advantage that other schools do, we make it to the tournament. And Vic, you'll remember, we took over that arena. Oh, it was all purple. It all was purple. a pure home game to the point that, yeah. you know, they put up on the on the big screen, the video for each team, like, you know, yeah. come to Northwestern. We do this, that or the other. When they put the Vanderbilt video up there, we booed it down. We drowned <laughs> out the Vanderbilt video in boos. We were booing so loudly. Um, and that game is a game I will never forget, the Vanderbilt game, because we went way ahead. And yeah. then Vic in the – I always joke, back. but in the span – we had a 15-point lead. or I was 12. Yep. We had a 12-point lead. And in the span of four seconds, they tied the game. I don't know how the hell it happened, but they tied up a basketball game in no time. And then we held on for dear life at the end. And the kid oh, on the other team, I, I still hate this, committed a, 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 a terrible yeah. mistake and committed a foul when he shouldn't have. Um, and, and we knocked down a couple of free throws and we hold on to win. And that remains one of the best days of my life. And we all went back to the team mm -hmm. hotel and waited for you guys to come back. And when the buses pulled up, I mean, those are memories I'll have for the rest of my yeah. life. And then, Absolutely. of course, we played Gonzaga. You know, we're getting obliterated in the first half, mm -hmm. obliterated. And I yep. thought to myself, you know what? It was an incredible season. They're a national championship caliber team. I'm so proud of this. I, I'm not even upset. And then we started coming back. And we're chipping away and chipping away. And we are right there and then Zach Collins puts his hand up through the net through the bottom half of the net and blocks a shot in the most obvious and blatant goaltend mm, in yeah. literally the history of basketball that goes uncalled and Chris gets yeah. a technical and we lose on that and I will tell you it's it's to this day I can't stand it like to this day yeah. I can't even think about it it makes me so upset <laughs> they killed us if they had just been better than us, and, yeah. then it would have been okay. You can live with it, right. Like you, I still haven't gotten over that. I mean, honestly, we go from three-point game, Bryant goes in, gives it to Derek for a dunk. Would have been a one-point game. We have all the momentum. I think few use it at this point has used all his timeouts. So we definitely would have had him on the ropes. But before that, I will say what's funny is the Vanderbilt game, no one talks about it. Everyone in Northwestern, especially in my time, just talks about – Oh, we got cheating in Zaga when, when literally that Vanderbilt game could have been anybody's game because Vanderbilt's two man hit four or five threes in a row yeah. to tie the game. Then Lachance comes down, makes that floater. They go up by one, I think, and with like ten, like who knows, like ten seconds left, he comes up and intentional fouls 
the best free throw shooter in the Big Ten in Brian McIntosh. And, you know, it, it's kind of like a, if you're a Vanderbilt fan, you're definitely saying, what the hell just happened? Yeah. We they had no right to win, and we almost stole it. Hey, man, March Madness catch <laughs> It's part of the madness. That in the game between the two smart kid schools, right, is decided by a dumb, dumb, dumb error. Again, I, <laughs> I, I love all the kids yeah. that are playing hard. I'm not, I'm not sure, but a stupid mental mistake. Thank God it wasn't us. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't our North, school. Northwestern's today. a little smarter. You guys are a little yeah, smarter than a that. little smarter than Vanderbilt. But but it was, I mean, those are so the memories of that. Look, I yeah. love you guys. You guys know that. I mean, Vic knows that. Yeah. I was there all the time. My son Absolutely. Stevie and I flew out. We went to practices. I and mean, that was yeah. so much fun. I loved it. And, you know, I still love the kids. I love the team. I watched us play the other day, Saturday afternoon. We played Purdue and we played them tough. And, you know, yeah. we're losing games, but we're playing hard. And I, I look, I will That's support this game you're talking about. Yeah. I will support the kids for the rest of my life. Um, I, I know how hard you guys are working. I know how hard you guys are trying. Um, and, and I know that you're not getting paid for it. So it, I, my, my perspective on pro sports is very different from my perspective on college sports. I'm never critical of a college player that is giving everything he or she has. And, uh, I, I, what can I say? I love the Northwestern teams. Our football team had a terrific year this year. What a thrill Absolutely. It was to watch those guys. They were great. One heartbreaking, or just one bad day. I mean, b- yeah. bottom line, had one bad day against Michigan state. Otherwise the God's honest truth is, we would have had a real chance to be playing for the national championship, which would have been unimaginable. It would have been unbelievable. I mean, funny thing is, there's a funny story about um, that Michigan game, you know, the Eric Pardon layup that everyone thinks about. Yeah. In in those last seconds, and, you know, this is uh, – because no one's heard this before. This is Aaron live on Breaking the news. <laughs> we uh, – game is tied, and they come down, and I think um, they run a play for Mo Wagner to get a, a three. Zach Irvin slips out of it, gets a wide open layup and misses it. We get the rebound, you know, everyone's kind of like freaking out at that. First of all, he just missed it. We call the timeout and uh, we're in the huddle. And uh, usually in those situations, you know, Coach Collins and Coach Brian James, you know, are talking over and Coach James usually is the one drawing up the late game plays. He's in there and he's, uh, and you just have to understand the magnitude of the game. Like this is, to all of us, this is the game. Like if we win this game, we're in the tournament. Like this is what's going to, Stamp us in the tournament, another win against a a good Michigan team. And Coach James in the huddle, just, you know, I was just thinking, like, what should we run? So the the first time, the first timeout just goes. So Coach Collins uses another timeout. And where they're like, do we just, like, do we just walk it up and just say, like, let's just ISO for the game? Or, like, like, what's going to happen, right? Um, So Coach James, you know, draws up this Hail Mary play that obviously unfolded. And first of all, he asked me, Vic, can you throw it? And I'm sitting there looking at my hands like, no, 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 I'm not throwing it. <laughs> if, I, if I get I'm throwing him to the, the seventh row on the right side of the court. So, nah, <laughs> I can't throw it. And so he, he gets Nate. He subs in um, Nate for Sanjay. And he says, you know, Nate, you got it. This, this is what's going to happen. Right. And as we all walk out, we're like, is, is, are we going to double up? You know, basically, we're, we're all thinking like we're going to double overtime. You know, when do these Hail Marys ever work? So you had no confidence um, in the play. <laughs> none, no, none whatsoever. Like none. Like you know, he told Nate, "Don't throw it." Basically, he's like, "If he's there, I guess throw it." But you know, don't throw it because if nobody touches it, they get the ball again. You know, right under their basket. Yeah. And so we're just like, "All right, well, let's." Who knows, man? Let, let's just get ready for double overtime. Let's play defense, hold them. And I swear to, I swear to God, like I'm the the safety valve. Like I'm the person he's supposed to get the ball to. And, like, let's just jog up and throw a full court heave if it's not for Derek. And, man, when I come back for it and I see Nate winding up to throw it, and he throws it, I think my heart stopped. And that, in that, like, span of two seconds when the ball was in the air, it felt like 30 <laughs> minutes of watching the ball. And it looked, you know, from my angle, it looked like, oh, my God, he threw it long. Like, you know, like, we're going to have to play defense under the basket against arguably the best offensive team in the Big Ten. Like, that year, Michigan won the Big Ten tournament. Like, they were a very good team. And, you know, you're watching the ball and you're like, <laughs> I don't know. And when, when he caught it, I knew the game was over. When Derek actually caught the ball, I knew it was over. And that, like, the tournament was awesome. Everything Greeny has said, the sea of purple in Salt Lake City. But that moment when Derek caught the ball, 
and laid the ball in might be my favorite basketball memory ever. And there might not be a better memory. Like scoring an NBA point, playing in the bubble, playing in the playoffs, like watching Derek catch it and lay the ball in and having the like the crowd yeah. storm the court. Bar none, my favorite basketball memory. Mine too. I mean, that that's my favorite too. That 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 was what can you say? I mean, it was just it was the greatest thing ever. And you're right. And again, obviously, it's much more personal for you than it is for me. But I can say that as a, as a fan who had been in that building, you know, never seeing that happen, never seeing us make the tournament. And and, and I, I, I when when Big Ten Network did a film about the season, uh, yeah. they interviewed for it. And the story yeah. I told them was, I said, the story of my life as a Northwestern fan would be titled, and then Scotty Lindsay got mono. <laughs> because it <laughs> was <laughs> going great. And then Scotty got mono. And you're like, what could happen? Like, yeah. going along, we're so good. And then, oh, here's one of our best players has mono. I mean, that, that's yeah. not what it's going You know, and, and um, but so when you guys beat Wisconsin mm-hmm. at Wisconsin without Scotty, that was a big game, too. That was a yeah. very big win. I remember that one very well. And, and mm-hmm. that felt like it had done it. I think. We would have got in even without that Michigan game, but yeah. that Michigan game was um, the stand. Was a big deal. There was a good game in there too against Rutgers. They weren't that good then, but they came into uh, Welsh Ryan and they played yeah. really tough. They played very tough. Yeah, Kelly knocked down like three or four threes, which yeah. might have been only threes he made the entire year. Um, <laughs> that was a really good. I mean, there were some great moments, but that one, the Derek Barton play, is I mean, it's by far the best play in Northwestern history. Um, and and one of the best plays I've ever seen. It's funny for me because I went to New York University, so I don't even have Northwestern ties personally, but they I've become a Northwestern fan because of knowing Vic and Charlie, who I went to high school with, and just being around all the guys and seeing how amazing they all are. And so now when I watch these games, it's the same thing for me. You know, I'm I'm watching. We watched the football game. Uh, I watched with yeah. Charlie. And Santa Barbara, and we were going crazy. I'm yelling at the TV, and I'm not even – I didn't even go to Northwestern. So it's, it's live funny. When I lived uh, – my first year, I lived on 5th and 10th in a dorm mm-hmm. called Ruben. And, uh, yeah, so that was an experience. And then I lived in Brooklyn for three years. Uh, okay, so I grew up after that. Silver Towers. So if in, you remember – where? Silver Towers. Did okay. you ever go to the Bowl Center, like where the basketball team used yeah, to yeah, play? Yeah, 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 yeah. Those three big beige buildings. Yeah, yeah. That's where wow. I grew up. Wow. So I grew up playing basketball at the Cole Center. So uh, on the campus That's of NYU, they had a really good player when I was a kid growing up named Terry Tarpy that we would mm. all go. My brother my brother and his friend used to ball boy for them, to, at, uh, for the NYU basketball team. And um, we used to go to play. My friends and I would go play basketball at that gym. So that's where I grew up playing ball. So um, I always had a little bit of a yeah. – my father was at NYU Law School, so I always had a little bit of an affinity – for NYU, but then I went to Evanston and dropped the Y, and that was the end of that. <laughs> it's it's a totally different experience, and it's one that I, as I'm a big sports fan, and I'm jealous, you know, that I didn't have that. And so, in a way, now having the connection to Northwestern, it's become my my sports school that I, you know, didn't have at NYU. Um, so it's been it's been really cool to watch Northwestern grow. But I think what I have to give them credit for is playing in the Big Ten is so tough in football and basketball. So just like you said, to go out there and compete against these teams is impressive. It really is. Um, so well, you can't take that away from them. Vic, I don't know what you would have thought of this. And I don't know, this might have, you might have never come. But when I was in school, there was a lot of talk of Northwestern joining the Ivy League. A lot of talk. That really? Was a, yes, that was a, not just amongst people. Like that was, that was something that was being considered. And honestly, I was in favor of it at the time. So I mm-hmm. thought that those feel like the schools yeah. that we should be competing with in every right academically and otherwise. We're a small, private, elite un- academic university. So I thought schools like Stanford, Northwestern, Duke, Vanderbilt, those schools would make sense being combined with, you know, Yale. The Ivies. And now I'm very glad. And the reasons we didn't were financial, I think. And mm-hmm. now I'm extremely glad that yeah. we didn't. Um and it has worked out really well. But we are this we are this small, private, ac- elite academic institution surrounded by or, or, or competing amongst all of these huge state schools. And 
the fact that we compete at all, I think is incredible. And it's a testament to the leadership we've had there. Jim Phillips, who has been our athletic director for years up until now, he's just left to go become the commissioner of the ACC, but he's the best. He's done an unbelievable job. And Chris Collins came in and brought in guys like Vic Law and Scotty Lindsay and players who would never have come to Northwestern before. And Pat Fitzgerald, because he has that passion for our university is, you know, has, has instilled that in our football program. And we now have, you know, we have a top 20 football program in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not Alabama, but no one's out. I mean, there's only one Alabama, but we are yeah. a, a program that is yeah. ranked every year, plays in good ball games every year. That was a pipe dream. When I went to Northwestern, I think we won four games in my four years combined. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what we have done, what we have done to grow our athletics programs is remarkable. And I, I mean, I, for one, am thrilled about it. Yeah, I am. Are you, are, side note, are you a Jets fan? Or a, yeah. a, a, okay, so you're you're used to the the tragedy of, of losing season after season. Oh, that's Bush League, Jake. Oh man, here's a Rams I, I, I fan feel, talking. Big. I feel I feel for I actually feel for Jets fans. I always like I always get convinced like this will be the year. So I do feel for for any Jet fan out there. Uh, but I, I want to take it back uh, to your experience covering the Bulls because I know Vic is dying to talk about Michael Jordan. And I, you know, we didn't, our generation didn't really get to, to watch Michael. Um, so I'd love Speak to hear more. yourself, from, mate. Well, you know, you're <laughs> a little bit older than me slightly, but what was that like being close to that? I know you, you said you owe your career to Michael Jordan, but I, I'm just so curious what it was like to be in those arenas, to see him perform at that level. Right. I mean, to be clear, I owe my career to him only because coverage of him became. Yes. Yes. And that that everyone wanted me. So I was doing appearances here and there and everywhere. The, the, because everyone wanted to talk about them and Michael. Yeah. Him. Um, it was an incredible education in sports and beyond. And if you watched last dance, which I'm sure you did, um, you saw stuff that I've known for 25 years, which is the combination of determination, self-confidence and uh, mental toughness that he had, those three things are what set Michael apart. So he was a brilliant athlete, obviously, and an extraordinarily skilled and talented player. But that's not what made him the best ever. What made him the best ever were the determination, just the, the singular focus, right? the self-confidence, the unyielding, unwavering self-confidence, and the, um, what was the other, the determination? Mental toughness. Mental toughness. On the mental toughness. I mean, you couldn't ever ever intimidate or or make him question anything like he was just coming you know he he would never happen he was coming and um it was incredible to watch and incredible to learn from i will also tell you that having been around him pretty much every day for at a time when i genuinely believe he was the most famous person in the world considering who he was his feet were very close to being on the floor. Like he was an easy person to deal with as a reporter. I'm talking about, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think he was an easy teammate to deal with, but yeah. <laughs> the reporter, he was open. He was cooperative. He liked talking to the media. This was at a time before social media and before the proliferation of stuff yeah. that has made so much yeah. of this very unpleasant. So he liked it and he was, in that regard, very easy to deal with and just introspective and insightful and always ready to talk to you. So I loved him. I mean, I loved, I loved being around him and um, I learned immeasurable lessons about sports and about things other than sports from him, stuff that I will never forget. I'm sure you can speak more to this, but by covering arguably the most famous, or like you said at the time, the most famous person on the planet, uh, and especially in sports, I imagine that helped you a lot with your career because you're learning how to deal with people. So anybody that's not Michael Jordan, everybody's different and they have their own challenges to navigate and interview and, and be around. But I'm sure that being around Michael Jordan so much kind of held you to a higher standard and taught you a lot about how to interact with these players. Yeah. Although I will say that, as I just said, he was much easier to deal with than a lot yeah. of guys. Weren't that good? Um, like there are a long list of guys who are not so easy to deal with. Yeah. That team, those teams were actually very 
easy to deal with. The, the team that I really covered primarily was the first three-peat. So people, I think, now remember the second three-peat team better because they had Rod. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will always say I think the first team was better. And the primary reason is because Jordan was better. Jordan right. was 27, 28, 29 years old. Michael Jordan on the second three-peat teams was the best player in the league. Michael Jordan in the first three-peat teams was the best player that ever lived. And he was so good that it was – interesting. Well, it's just his physical. I mean, by the time he finished the second three P team, he was thirty-five years old. Um, yeah. He just, it just. Yeah, he was in his prime. A little different time in terms of nutrition, and he also played. This is another thing that does not sit well with me. Michael Jordan's age thirty-three, thirty-four, and thirty-five seasons were the ninety-six, ninety-seven, and ninety-eight championship teams. That three P. Mm-hmm. Go back and look how many regular season games he played. Or don't bother. I'll tell you. He played <laughs> eighty-two, eighty-two, and eighty-two games. None of this load management nonsense. None of this, none of that. Michael Jordan played. And in fact, he played every game like it mattered. And that's one of the reasons that I think he didn't have the longevity that some others maybe now will have. Mm-hmm. They didn't travel the way they travel now. They didn't have some of the advances in nutrition and sleeping. That, that man did not do a lot of sleeping. Um, <laughs> we all know now the significance yeah. of so when he was 33, 34, 35, he just wasn't athletically the player he had been. He had, he was now the smartest player in the league. He was still the best player in basketball. I mean, he yeah. was the best player in the league. Yeah. But when he was 27, 28, 29, he was the best player ever. That no, no, I don't care what you show me. LeBron, I love him. He's unbelievable. I don't care who else you want to bring up. No one was ever Michael Jordan for that time. At, at that period of time, I don't, you've never seen anything like him. And if you're not old enough to have seen it, the only way I can just, the only thing I can think of to tell you is you had to see it because yeah. he was just so good on both ends of the floor that no one has ever been like that. No one has ever, even in my opinion, been that close. Come yeah, on now, preach greeny. <laughs> no, I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, I think like, like I said, I, you know, I didn't get to necessarily watch it all up close, but I definitely am aware that there was something that occurred that I can't possibly understand without having seen it at the time. Um, so, so paying respect to that is really important, but I want to return back to your transition over to ESPN. Uh, what was it like when you first got to ESPN? I know it's a lot different than it is now. It's a lot of growth since 1996 when you started out there. Can you kind of just talk us through the beginnings there, what that was like, what you were doing? Yeah. So I went to ESPN when they launched a network called ESPN News. And I was one of like 11 young anchors that they hired. I was 29 years old. And this was in the summer of 1996. And I anchored on ESPN News, which was a small fledgling network without a whole lot of people watching. And was trying to work my way up to be on SportsCenter at that time because there were really no opinion based shows. There was no Mike and Mike. There was, there was no PTI. There was none of those shows existed yet. And they, I started working my way up to being on SportsCenter. And then they decided to do a 24-hour sports radio network. And they put me together with Mike Golick to do mornings. And again, we were there before anybody was there. There was no PTI. There was no, none of those shows existed. Um, we really kind of created that to some degree. And, um, you know, we did it for 18 years and um, it was a, an extraordinary run, an extraordinary ride. It changed my life. I mean, in every imaginable way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I am thrilled and I am thrilled to see the growth in that industry that has come, not because of Mike and me, but certainly we were there at the beginning of it. And our success, I think, inspired a lot of other people to do it. And um, so I'm thrilled with that. And, and um you know, I've gone on now at ESPN to try a bunch of new things. And I have, as you mentioned, a TV show and another radio show. So I'm having a very good time. I feel 10 years younger than I felt five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> five years from now as well. Can you speak to some of that preparation involved? Because I think a lot of people, right, they see these shows, they see the outcome, um, but they don't think about how much actually goes into it, how much they don't actually see getting ready well, for each show or each radio show. Analogy, like... You know, Vic, how much time do you spend practicing before you play a game? Like by the time you're playing, right. the game, like most of the work is done. Uh, mm-hmm. So like you're on the air 
like you, we should know exactly what we're going to do and we should right. know exactly how to do it. Like the work is done. Now let's just go out and do it. But the work is all of the other stuff. Um, you know, the work is, um, you know, all of the meetings that we have, all of the time you spend going through the internet and finding stories and, and putting together stories and coming up with ideas for segments and all that kind of stuff. That's a 24 hour a day job. Like that never stops. Like I'm on the air for four hours now and I am working on the show the other 20 hours. So that, that show prep is just life. Life is your show prep. And being on the air is the fun part. But the practice, the rest of it is practice. And that's actually the most important part. No, I was just going to say, I can only imagine, you know, he's talking about prepping for the show. Yeah. During that period of COVID when there were no sports, how prepping for the show was at that point. Like what, what were you doing to try and even get, <laughs> we, so we would have meetings and be like, what should we talk about tomorrow? Like, and, and we <clears throat> would come up with ideas and we'd come up with lists and we'd come up with historically interesting topics and just relevant and interesting conversations because right. we had no choice. Like, mm -hmm. you know, necessity is what's the expression? Necessity is the, the father of invention, whatever it is. I always get that wrong. But, <laughs> whatever the expression is like, we had no choice. We had to, we had to do something. So we just did the best we could. And that, but yes, to your point, that was when it was particularly important. Those meetings all day, the day before we have a meeting right after the show, we have another meeting in the middle of the afternoon. We're exchanging notes right up in the time till the time we go to sleep. It starts again in the morning, about four hours before we go on and it never stops. I remember uh, when the last dance came out, it was treated, or at least I treated it like it was a sporting event, like a live sporting event, you know, waiting till Sunday to watch it uh, when it aired live because it was, we had nothing else to watch sports wise. You know, we were starved of sports, live sports content. And I imagine, I think that took over actually part of ESPN and all of these shows because it gave everybody something new to talk about. Um, and then you could kind of bounce off of that and talk about the greatness of Michael Jordan and kind of relive some of those things that we were talking about. That's exactly right. That was basically 10 weeks of my show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but, that was uh, a couple of weeks. That was a family thing for us. But I wanted to ask, uh, do you prefer live radio or TV or, or do you kind of enjoy the, the challenge and differences of the two or how do you approach those? I, I always joke doing television well, doing TV badly is a lot harder than doing radio badly because you have all these other advantages in television, but doing radio well is much harder than doing TV. Well, because radio is, you don't have anything, but you like, I'm just creating a kind of, I don't have video. I don't have uh, graphics. I don't have, I got, you got nothing but me. Yeah. You've just gonna, I'm just going to be having a conversation. Interesting enough that literally millions of people are going to want to listen to it. And that's not easy to do. And it takes a lot of time and practice. And, but to get really, really, really good at that is much harder than being good at a TV show. Because the TV show, you can do a, there's a million gimmicks. You can put in graphics. You can put in exploding, exploding pictures. You can put in <laughs> you can put anything you want. You can go crazy, yeah. So radio, it's pretty much just you and the audience. And that's uh, a much greater and I think more interesting challenge. I think for us, you know, we just started this podcast. We've been doing it now for a couple months. And um, like you said, doing radio really well is tough, right? Because it's just you. It's just your voice. What are some of those things that you, I know it's not easy to just kind of chalk up into a couple bullet points, but what are some of those things that you've learned along the way that, you know, you, you can share with people like us or other people listening that are trying to do shows, uh, podcast well, shows? There's no one way to do it. That's the first thing. If anyone tells you, here's how you do it, stop listening to them. <clears throat> because what you have to be first and foremost is just you. Here, Mike Ditko once said something to me. He didn't just say it to me. It's one of his expressions. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And I would amend that with this, which is to say, just by being yourself doesn't mean you will be a successful broadcaster. But if you are not yourself, you have no chance. So being yourself, you give yourself a chance. So that is the first and most important thing is to, and, and this generally only comes with experience, is the ability to be the closest thing possible to your authentic self on the air. Almost everyone, as soon as they get on the air, starts adopting all sorts of other things. You, am I talking right? Am I thinking right? Or do I want to talk faster? Do I want to talk slower? 
Should I have said that? Did that sound right? Did that come off the right way? All sorts of things you would never think to yourself in a conversation if you weren't on the air. When you get to a point where you are the closest thing to just your natural self, I'm not going to try and sound like Mike Greenberg. I'm not going to try and sound like Jim Rohn. I'm not going to try and sound like Colin Cowherd. I'm not going to try and sound like Tony Kornheiser. I'm just going to sound like me. When you get to that, that's when you're getting somewhere. And that really can only come with the 10,000 hours, you know, like, like, like the old, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell expression, like yeah. it just takes 10,000 hours and you just got to do it. And that's why, you know, this generation, you guys having these podcasts and all this kind of stuff that you can do to get these reps, like that's everything, you know, it's yeah. like those, all of the drills that you do, right. That's, that's all the shots yeah. you get up on, on your off days. And that's all like, that's, that's how you get to be good at this stuff. And I don't care what anybody tells you. You can't get good at this without that. Like there is natural talent and natural ability. And, and you can recognize that in people, in, in inexperienced people. But really, really, really good talk show hosts are not born. They're honed. They're created. And there are any number of fundamentals to it that, you know, you could spend hours learning. But you have to learn those and then you have to apply them. And the only way to, to apply them is to actually use them. That's incredible insight. So thank you for that. But th- thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate having you on. Well, it is my pleasure. Vic, keep killing it. We're all proud of you. We all love thank watching. You. And I'm, I'm following every single day. And you guys, congratulations on the podcast and good luck with this. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Thank you. All right, fellas. Take care. Have a good one, Green. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast is presented by Bristol Studio, sound editing by Rashad Allen, music by James Grissom. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.